Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. Tonight's show includes pre-recorded interviews with two guests who both live and work in the Eel River watershed. The first interview was with Dana Stolzman, the executive director of the Salmonid Restoration Federation. The Salmonid Restoration Federation is a statewide organization that is focused on promoting the art and science of habitat restoration by providing educational workshops and trainings to landowners, nonprofit employees, consultants, and state and federal agencies. Dana has been the executive director for the Salmonid Restoration Federation for over 12 years and has a background in salmon recovery and community organizing. My second guest was Gabriel Rossi, who is an ecologist and researcher at UC Berkeley and for the nonprofit California Trout. His research is primarily focused on how juvenile salmon behavior responds to river food webs, stream flow, and physical habitat. The Salmonid Restoration Federation is coordinating its 24th annual Coho Confab this year, and that will take place September 9th through the 11th in the South Fork Eel River watershed. This year's Confab will be held at the Gomde Buddhist Retreat Center, which is a forested sanctuary at the confluence of Cedar Creek and the South Fork Eel River watershed. The Confab is a field symposium to learn about watershed restoration and techniques to restore and recover coho salmon populations. So I asked Dana and Gabe to sit down with me to talk about the event and about some of the information that will be shared there. Let's start with my interview with Dana. Tell us a little bit about the Salmon Restoration Federation first. Like, what is this group and what are some of the primary tasks that you take on on a, any given year? Sure. So Salmonid Restoration Federation is a statewide nonprofit organization, and our mission is to promote restoration and recovery of California's wild salmonid populations. And we primarily do that by producing the largest salmon restoration conference in California, our annual salmonid restoration conference. But we also do other types of technical education, including the Coho Confab, field schools for different restoration techniques, um, including large wood uh, restoration and aug augmentation, fish passage, uh, bioengineering, you know, sediment and erosion control and so forth. So we're really look to partner, uh, you know, with our restoration partners to produce events to help advance watershed restoration in different regions. And the Coho Confab is really wonderful because we host this event in areas where there are Coho salmon refugia and many people in collaborative efforts to protect and enhance Coho salmon habitat. Great. So where is the CONFAB going to be this year and when is it occurring? Well, we're we're so excited. Um, this year, it's September 9th through 11th at the Gomde Buddhist Retreat Center uh, in the Leggett area in South Leggett. And one of the reasons we're so excited is we've never hosted the CONFAB in the South Fork Eel River before. We've had it um, as far north as the Smith River and the Klamath, and uh, we've had it as far south as Lagunitas Creek in West Marin. And the South Fork Eel River is really critical to the recovery of coho salmon in this evolutionary significant unit um, of you know, the North Coast. And we 
are so excited because there's so many incredible projects that really inform uh, some of the best thinking about coho salmon habitat restoration. So people will have the opportunity to uh, visit restoration projects in the Sinkion Wilderness Area and um, along the South Fork. People will have the opportunity to visit the Angelo Reserve um, that Gabe Rossi is going to lead that tour um, with some other scientists. And uh, Anderson Creek, where there's a really significant coho salmon population. So there's a lot of opportunities to see projects that people wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to see. Right. Because like, you know, with the exception of the Angelo Reserve, there a lot of the sites are on private land. So it's different landowners opening up their properties for educational and outreach purposes. And who I generally like, attends the confab? Like who, who are the types of participants? Well, one of the things um, that's so incredible about the confab is that it's a really wide audience. We get um, scientists and planners. We get graduate students who are, you know, looking at, uh, you know, pursuing a career in the restoration field. Uh, we get private landowners who are engaged in restoration activities on their property or want to learn more about um, how to be able to do watershed restoration on their property. Um, so we get, you know, project proponents, um, engineers, students, biologists, um, research hydrologists, foresters. Um, and it's, it's really exciting. It does vary depending on where we are. Last year we were in the Navarro and I would say that we had um, more people that were coming from it, like an agricultural background. And I would say this year we have more people that are focused on fisheries and forest health. Um, but each year, you know, what is consistent is that it's bringing together people from kind of all aspects of the watershed restoration field and is, is just really inspiring. And even though, for example, the Angelo Reserve, you know, is owned by UC Berkeley, to be able to get a tour from some of the scientists that have, you know, done their doctoral research there, including um, Mary Power, the, the faculty director, is going to be one of our speakers this year from UC Berkeley. It's just an opportunity to, to see various aspects of the watershed and, and really significant tributaries um, and learn firsthand. So we're so excited about that. And one of the other things that the CONFAB does is we, we always have an open forum where we discuss what are regional and pertinent issues that um, to the geographic region, but also that are relevant for coho salmon recovery. So this year, we're really excited that it's going to be focused on the salmon habitat and restoration prioritization effort, the SHARP effort, that looked at various tributaries to the South Fork Eel and kind of ranked them as far as priorities and really convened different experts. And uh, that process has been pretty open and accessible. And this is really a great opportunity to hear about the findings, but also to provide feedback, um, you know, very specific feedback because the what they're trying to accomplish is kind of a roadmap for recovery and looking at what types of recovery actions and projects can happen in the next 10 years to turn the tide on coho salmon recovery. Yeah, I mean, the work that's happening in the South Fork, whether it's restoration or research, is really, really interesting. I remember I was out once on the Angelo Reserve and learned that they're like tracking 
raindrops, you know, through their isotopes and seeing like where a raindrop goes after it's sunken into the surface of the ground and how trees are taking it up. I mean, it's really cutting edge science. It's really interesting stuff. So it sounds like anyone can attend, but that it tends to bring together certain professionals that have uh, overlapping expertise in physical or biological sciences. So when is this happening and, and, and how do people find out about it? Yeah, so it's September 9th through 11th and uh, the information is on our homepage at www.calsalmon.org. And I also want to say that, you know, this is a time... Uh, the confab, you know, is in Mendocino County, close to the Humboldt County line as well. And <clears throat> this is really a time of transition for the North Coast. So if there is anyone out there that is interested in environmental conservation or is considering, you know, kind of a, a career change based on, you know, market fluctuations um, and, and uh, you know, I'm specifically talking about people that are in the cannabis industry. A lot of people have reached out to us and said, you know, I really want to kind of utilize some of the skills I've gained, you know, going through the permitting process or coming into compliance or creating, you know, uh, site maps um, and a, you know, conservation and maintenance plan on my property. This is really a great opportunity for people to learn about the restoration field and see what opportunities exist. So, um, you know, basically it is a registration-based event. We bring all the food and, and beautiful meals are included. Um, but if anyone's, you know, interested in attending and can't afford the registration fees, um, please feel free to contact us at info at calsalmon.org. And we do have work trade opportunities. And uh, the registration, we're in the late registration range is $225 for the three days, including all meals and camping. So it's really a good deal for what is offered and in an extraordinarily beautiful place. I just toured Gomde last week and it's just one of the most beautiful places in the South Fork Eel. What it really does take a community to produce this event and it's kind of a farm to table experience, the food there. So many people, you know, donate beautiful garden bounty and local farmers donate and we really craft a menu based on what's locally available. Um, so it's great food and a great experience. And uh, one of the things I'll also say is that um, why Gomde was so receptive to us hosting this exciting event is that Cedar Creek, which is this incredible tributary to the South Fork, I, it yields about 14% of the flow in the summertime comes from Cedar Creek. And Caltrout has an incredible project there right now, a fish passage barrier removal project that's going to open up nine miles of habitat. So people will actually be able to see that um, project, you know, in construction. And that will be one of the tours that we're offering that's um, going to be really exciting. That's great. So it does require advanced re registration and there is a fee, but if the fee is limiting, there's ways to get in contact with SRF to talk about that. You guys have, you mentioned you have an annual conference. Do you have any information about that this year? Sure. We're, we're super excited. Um, it's actually the 40th annual Salmonid Restoration Conference. It's going to be at the Fortuna River Lodge. And we're in the process right now of uh, the open call for proposals, but that's going to have fantastic field tours, a plenary session. We have 12 concurrent sessions and 
you know, about usually about five um, technical workshops. So that's going to be next April, uh, April 2023. Great. Well, well thanks. thanks so much, Anna. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you sharing about the confab. I look forward to attending. If you are just tuning in, that was an interview I recorded with Dana Stolzman, the executive director of the Salmonid Restoration Federation. And she was talking about an upcoming event, the 24th annual Coho Confab that will be held at the Gomde Buddhist Retreat Center on September 9th through the 11th. And you are listening to the Ecology Hour on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. I'm Anna Halligan, and our next guest is Gabe Rossi, an ecologist and researcher at UC Berkeley. And our conversation was focused on several collaborative studies that are occurring specifically in the South Fork Eel River, but throughout the entire Eel River watershed. Gabe will be presenting at the Coho Confab, but I was fortunate enough to talk with him about the research that they're doing and some of the preliminary findings that they're discovering. Yeah, hi. Yeah, so my name is Gabe Rossi. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at UC Berkeley. Um, but I live up here in Arcata in Humboldt County. I've lived here for about 16 years. Um, and I did my uh, I worked for a consulting firm in Arcata for, for six years after I got my degree at, at Humboldt State, um, McBain Associates, and formerly McBain and Trush. And we worked on in-stream flow studies kind of all over the state. And, and uh, it was a really amazing experience for me, learning experience. And, and through that process, I kind of ran into a couple of challenges, I think, with managing fisheries and when thinking about rivers in, in California. One of those was that there was uh, kind of a lack of understanding of, of food webs. Um, and how food webs and biotic interactions kind of have a big big effect on, on salmon recovery and salmon conservation. Um, and there was also kind of a lack of like a putting together a coherent uh, management strategy for managing fish from headwaters all the way to the ocean. You know, we, we tended to segment the river into these pieces and and that kind of pushed me to, to, to go back to school. And I ended up connecting with Mary Power at UC Berkeley and she took me on as a doctoral student. So. I, I went down to Berkeley for a few years and, and did a PhD with Mary and all my work focused primarily on the eel and also the Russian River, but primarily the eel River. Um, and it was just a phenomenal experience uh, working with Mary. She's an amazing, amazing person, amazing teacher. And I learned, I learned an enormous amount from her and got to continue working in, in the eel. Uh, and after the, my PhD, I, I was able to um, uh, moved back to Humboldt County and, and through partnerships with UC Berkeley and California Trout, which is a, a statewide nonprofit focusing on, on fish and water and people conservation. Um, I was able to start to build a science program in the North Coast, focusing on research in the eel and, and other coastal streams uh, on salmon ecology. And so that's what I've been doing for the last, oh, 15 years or so now. And it's been really rewarding and, and a, a great experience. Yeah. Great. Um, well, I I have been tracking some of the research that you've been doing, and it's been really interesting to learn about. We had David Drolley on once, too, where he talked a little bit about some of the work that you guys are doing oh, yeah. um, in the Powers Lab that's focused on the critical zone. Um, but I was thinking it would be great to talk about these kind of collaborative studies that you've been involved in. And I was just wondering if you could kind of give us a little bit of an overview of what's going on 
Yeah. Um, and what's driving these these studies? Totally. <clears throat> um, yeah, where to start? There's so many, so many different, so much different work going on. I mean, I think it's it's good to start in the eel and start with a place, you know, because I think all the subjects and the concepts, scientific concepts are really important, but it's grounding them in a place, you know, gives it all kind of purpose and context. And, you know, the Eel River um, is such an important river in California um, uh, for, for fish and for people uh, and for native fish, you know, it's the third largest river in the state. Um, and, you know, compared with a lot of other kind of high profile salmon streams, like maybe the Sacramento or the San Joaquin, even the Klamath to some extent, the eels has been less developed and maybe less regulated. Um, and there's the, the genetics of its wild fish are less impacted by hatcheries. There's a significant amount of protected land in the eel, and that's growing thanks to work by, you know, local conservation groups and our state senator, Mike McGuire and others. Um, the headwaters of a lot of streams in the eel are reasonably intact. And so it gives it a it gives it a a chance. It gives us hope that you know we can we can work on recovery uh, of fish in the eel. But but like everywhere uh, in California, you know the the kind of the legacy of the last 150 years um, on the native fish and, and the indigenous people also uh, of this area has been really atrocious. Um, and it, I think it's important to remember how long ago this started in the eel. You know there was massive harvest of salmon in the eel in the 1850s and 60s and 70s um, and 80s. And to the point that there was there was a, a significant crash in the Eel River fishery by the 1890s. Um, you know, in the 18 in the in the 18 late 1850s, there were fish being sold from the Eel River in markets in China and in New York and you know in Australia and all over and we have kind of newspaper clippings to to show us some of this and they were catching fish with these you know 600 to 1800 foot long seine nets or nets that would go across the across the river and just harvest everything there's so, some really incredible photos of like salmon lining the banks of the south fork i know what you're talking about <laughs> oh yeah no it was un, unbelievable you know and the, the the historic abundance in this river i mean the the name of the river the we out people have given to it literally means abundance and 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 this river was just a, an enormous producer of life <laughs> obviously of, of salmon but of so many different native fish and to some extent we don't even know what we've lost on the eel because while we have good documented you know reasonably good documented focus on on the salmon species that have been impacted and their decline you know salmon are a are a focal species that hold an ecosystem together in many ways and and so many other animals that that went along with the salmon in 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 common that had relationships with them have also have also fallen apart um you know the lamprey runs have declined so precipitously and and you know the smelt and the herring and the sardine runs in the in the estuary we know very little about you know their historic abundance um ulicon and, and other really important fish species and so it's hard to try to Think about this whole system and say, okay, how do we put this back together? How can we recover this? Um, because we we're, we're still in a process of even understanding what it looked like when it was healthy. Um, and it's funny because you know Pacific salmon are one of the most well studied organisms on the planet, um, and yet there's still really fundamental things we don't know about uh, what they look like in a, in a truly healthy watershed here in Northern California. So it's it's exciting to be able to work on that. I think. And that's good. That, so that's kind of the context for a lot of this research. 
you know, and that, I guess, before I jump into the actual research, if we move from that period of harvest, you know, in the, in the late 1800s, so this massive overharvest, you know, this crass of the fishery, then it started to recover. And then we had, you know, the mechanized logging, especially post-World War II, when a lot of, you know, mechanized logging equipment came back and there was really heavy, intensive logging in the eel, especially the South Fork and other places. And then we had, you know, back-to-back, -back, you know, you know, floods that were 500-year events, you know, the 1955 and the 1964 floods that just brought all that sediment from the logging roads into the basin, massive impacts from those floods, which were compounded by the impacts of the mechanized logging, you know, and then, so you have this recovering fishery and it's like hammered again, you know, and then you have introduction of, of non-native pike minnow, which is a, a large piscivorous fish in, in 1979. Um, and then the you know, development and cannabis cultivation and, and and climate change and drought, you know, and to me, it's like every single returning fish at this point in the river is a miracle. Uh, and so, and so understanding how they were able to sustain environmental change historically, um, and, and what we can perhaps do to best help their recovery now is, is the focus of my research. Um, and I thought, and I told the story on the eel, but this is a, a, a story slight differences here and there, but that's pretty common to a lot of our coastal rivers in, in Northern California. Um, yeah, so what am I doing in terms of research? You know, we're, there's there's kind of a couple focal areas, I think, that I'm, I'm working on. And you mentioned David Drawley. I, I really admire David and his work and understanding geology, you know, and how important geology is in setting the stage for, for, for how rivers function, right? Because geology holds holds the rain, right? It holds the water and releases it back to the river. Um, it, 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 it also dictates landform and, 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 and geomorphology, which has a huge, huge effect on habitat. Um, and one of the things we know about salmon from, from a lot of phenomenal research in, in Alaska and elsewhere is that they live their lives, juvenile salmon, you know, live their lives in a lot of different ways. Uh, and we, you know, we often call this the portfolio effect, right? Which is this idea that that small subpopulations of animals that have specific and unique life histories that are all contributing to one large population will buffer that large population from environmental change, right? Because different subpopulations have the tools to deal with different kinds of envir environmental conditions. And so in the aggregate, having that diversity in the population is really important to having a resilient population over time. Um, and so that's one of the things I'm interested in, in studying is how, is, is what is the life history diversity of, of salmon, uh, the intrinsic capacity for life history diversity of salmon in, in the Eel River? Um, because the life histories that are expressed now might be a very simplified, we kind of think are a very simplified portfolio to what was historically there. And so we're trying to understand that both by understanding what's present now and by looking at the way that the hydrology and the food webs of the river may have supported historic life histories and thinking about how those can be rehabilitated um, through, you know, introduction or through habitat restoration and things like that. So, so that's, that's one of the focuses of my, of my research. Um, and I, and I, and, you know, Mary, uh, my PhD advisor, you know, is a food web ecologist, a river, a river food web ecologist. And so she really uh, taught me to think about the river as, as a, as a single food web, but also food webs within food webs, you know, 
And from that perspective, salmon are, are these kind of amazing travelers that kind of move from, from one group of food webs to others. And, and they are adapted to the phenology, which means the seasonality of their prey, when their prey becomes available in different places all across the river. You know, so juvenile fish being born in a little headwater stream, um, you know, might migrate into the main stem of the river and then down to some off-channel habitat or into the estuary. And in each of those places, it's taking advantage of a unique and different food web that's feeding it, helping it to grow, um, helping its body to develop as it prepares to enter the ocean. And all those different food webs that are interacting in time and space become this giant mosaic, right? In a healthy watershed that fish can surf across and 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 exploit and take advantage of and, and collectively have lots of different life histories that support them. And so when we look at the eel, we we can see um, both what we think the food webs that are functioning now are, and also what may have been the really critical food webs that are absent from the landscape that aren't functioning, the trophic pathways that have been severed, you know, and and we're trying to understand how to reconnect fish to those to those historic food webs and what that can mean for their recovery. So that's an area of my research I'm focusing on. Um, and then finally, um, you know, I mentioned pike minnow, uh, which is a really important species um, in the eel. It was introduced around 1979, um, and it has spread to become you know the dominant piscivorous, you know, fish-eating fish in the system. Um, and, you know, I think the word minnow is kind of a misnomer here, <laughs> even though they are in the minnow family, they, they can grow to be, you know, three feet long, right? There's these, there's, they can become these really large piscivorous animals that migrate all across the river. And obviously they eat native fish, which is predation, which is a big problem and a concern, but also um, they alter the behavior of, of native fish and, and potentially they, you know, change the, the potential life histories that we were just talking about that fish can, um, that fish can express across the landscape. Um, and so I'm involved in a project um, working with the Weok tribe um, and Stillwater Sciences and UC Berkeley and Caltrout to, um, to both understand the interactions between pike minnow and, and, and native fish in the basin and also to think about managing pike minnow. Um, and uh, my colleague, Phil Georgiakakos, who's been studying uh, pike minnow, he's a UC Berkeley researcher as well, a postdoc scientist, and he's been studying them in the South Fork of the Eel. And along with previous work by Brett Harvey and others, uh, they kind of understood that these pike minnow migrate up the South Fork of the Eel and then they might in the, in the spring and summer, and they migrate back down in the winter because they don't like the cold water temperatures and the high turbulent flows. Um, and so we're, we are, um, we got a grant through the Cutting the Green Tape Initiative um, to actually test out using a channel spanning weir to prevent the migration of pike minnow into the headwaters of the eel and protect a whole lot of salmon habitat, ideally, if this works, um, from the presence of those fish and also potentially remove, you know, uh, pike minnow from the from the river. Um, so, yeah, those are I think that's a, a decent overview of the different kinds of projects and research I'm working on. And I can talk more about any one of those things. I just, you know, I, I tend to go on tangents here. So maybe. Oh, uh, yeah, they're all, I mean, each thing <laughs> is super, another question. Yeah. super interesting. Um, I think that's one of the things why I really appreciate all the work that you and your colleagues are doing at UC Berkeley, because it's, it's all fascinating. And we could probably talk about one of those topics for an hour. But yeah. maybe just kind of feeding off of what you were just talking about with pikemen. That's interesting. I didn't actually yeah. realize that they were introduced in the 80s. I thought they'd been around for longer than that. So that 
That was new for me, but they're a really interesting fish because they, you know, they do coexist with some of these species in other systems, but right. they are right. not, you know, part of the original ecological makeup of the eel. And it's, it's, it's challenging. And, and with climate change in particular, I feel like there's a potential to increase the amount of habitat that pike minnow can occupy mm -hmm. because like you yeah. mentioned they, they don't really like cold water very much which is good for salmon because they do prefer cold water habitats um but maybe we could talk a little bit about that or in, in the context of pike minnow or maybe even in the context of food webs and flows but you know yeah. you you're talking about long you know really long-term changes over the landscape um, over time that have happened and now we're in the face of this change in climate and like how does that how do you factor that in when you're doing this research when you're thinking about historical impacts and then future impacts I mean that's a lot to toggle right there <laughs> yeah. yeah totally I mean it, and you know it's like these these principles of of ecosystems right you can everything is synergistic there's no you can't ever pull one one problem out of an ecosystem and isolate it and say, okay, we're going to just work on this in its own, you know, because everything is related to everything else. And that's, that's both the beauty of ecology and what, and what makes it challenging and frustrating to work, to work on, um, because you can't, because you can't do that. And that's the way our Western brains have, have tried to work for so long. Um, yeah, Pike Minnow, you're, you're right. I mean, the climate change impacts, um, you know, particularly with changes to hydrology, with changes to water temperature, um, may seem to favor pike minnow. And I think it's, a, you know, there's a couple different aspects to this we should think about. You you, you mentioned that pike minnow do live, are, are, you know, are native to a lot of salmon-bearing streams like the Sacramento and the Russian River just south of the eel, uh, which is true. Um, and, you know, there could have been a time uh, millennia ago where pike minnow existed in the eel. I, I don't know. But it does seem like they weren't um, present, you know, in the recent centuries prior to, you know, European colonization and, and that they were introduced in the in the late 70s uh, into the eel again, or for the first time, as far as we know. Um, and I don't think necessarily that our efforts are going to exterminate pike minnow entirely from the eel river. I, I think that, that would be a really tall order. And to do that, you would probably have to use management techniques that were so heavy-handed that they would be a problem for our native fish. So this mm -hmm. is a delicate and kind of an important thing to do carefully. But the idea would be to to hopefully um, reduce their populations enough that we can give recovering salmon a chance to to to, to regain a foothold uh, in, in the basin. And, and, and so there's different kind of methods and techniques that we're exploring to, to do that. Um, and like I said, you know, Pike minnow um, don't necessarily they they can they can alter the behavior and the and the and the recovery of salmon in a lot of different ways and predation is only one of them. You know, if you so for example, in the eel, you know, a lot of our native salmonids will spawn in, in tributary streams and then their juvenile fish will migrate from the tributaries into the main stem, and the main stem has more space, more physical space for juvenile fish to live in than the tributaries do. I mean, tributaries are 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 often you know, thought of as this pristine habitat, and they are often uh, pristine and really high quality habitat for juvenile fish to live in. Um, but they're space limited. You can only grow so many one year old salmonids in a, in a in a tributary stream before 
the amount of food and the amount of growth potential is limited by the number of fish. And so they have to migrate out. And, you know, we've done the math before. And, and if you look at the historic runs of salmon on the Eel River, it's really clear that tributary rearing alone could not have provided enough juvenile growth to produce that amount of adult return from the ocean. So those fish had to be migrating out of tributaries and rearing elsewhere in the basin, in the lower, in the, you know, in the main stem and in the estuary and the ecotone down there uh, are the most likely places that, that they could have done that. Um, and, and, that, and that's the part of the life history that's been kind of most truncated and most impacted, I think, uh, in the eel. And so if you introduce pikemen into that mix and think about how they could have played a role in that and could be preventing the recovery of those life histories, you know, um, one of the ways is, you know, you park a couple big pike minnow in a main stem pool early in the season, let's say, you know, April or May or June, when, when juvenile salmonids are migrating out of their tributary streams and into the main stem, even if they're not eaten, they're not going to want to hang out, you know, <laughs> next to this large predator. And, and, and that'll change likely, you know, the geometry of fear of that predator will change the, the behavior and the life history choices that these fish can make or choose to make. And so we have a lot to learn about this still, and we're, we're exploring, you know, and trying to understand what the actual consequences of, of those relationships are. But it certainly seems like that is one of the key um, life history implications of the presence of pikemen on native fish mm. is how it alters their behavior just as much as, as, as the predation plays a role. Oh, um, how, how interesting. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, Pikemen are kind of voracious predators. I, I did some research on them a long time ago and it was fascinating what they would eat. Yeah. I mean, they'll basically they'll eat whatever they can get their mouth on, right? Yeah, um, no, for sure. They, they can consume every native fish in the, in the basin. Right. And, and we're already dealing with some issues right now where fish don't have access to the same types of habitats or quality of habitat or amount of habitat. So you bring in this predator that wasn't really part of the original ecology and then you start on top of, you know, some of the limitations that fish have to access good quality habitat right now, you start to make that even harder, right? Absolutely, yeah. And and also potentially you have different impacts on different subpopulations of salmon, right? It's not equal. And so here's here's an example of the, how that could play out. And this is, this is somewhat conjecture, but I'm just telling a story with it. You know, in, in the Eel River, um, if you look at, the height, the, the natural hydrology, let's just take the south fork of the eel, right? You have some tributary streams that are, that are heavily forested on the, and, and are, have perennial flow all summer in most years, except for maybe extreme drought. Um, and, and water temperature tends to stay cool in those, in those streams. And then you have other tributary streams where water is, is abundant and flowing and cold in February, March, and April. And then by May and June, flow declines and maybe by June and July, it becomes dry, right? And you might say, well, okay, those aren't, those aren't important salmon streams, but actually uh, research is showing that those were really important, potentially really important salmon streams where fish would spawn in the early season in those streams and they would become productive, right? Food, the food webs would become productive for growing juvenile fish early, you know, by, by March or April. Um, there'd be a lot of productivity in those streams. And then small fish would then migrate from those streams out into the main stem and downstream to other non-natal habitats. Um, and then those streams would become dry in summer, but that wouldn't be impacting the salmonids because they would have already have spawned, reared, and moved out. And 
if you think about that, right, it's a very different timing, life history timing to how fish might behave in a cold perennial stream. And when all these things are working together, right, that's that portfolio effect that we're talking about that might buffer the population. So you have lots of different pulses and runs of fish. And there's some really cool historical fisheries work in the eel. I, I got a hold of a manuscript uh, a colleague at CWW passed off to me about research in the 1930s and 40s um, where they were doing downstream migrant trapping of salmonids. I mean, we've been studying this river for a long time and it's kind of uh, both humbling and also like frustrating that like we haven't been able to synthesize this information to, to, to do better. Um, but from those studies in the 30s and 40s, we see that there were large numbers of fish migrating out of some of these streams that do become hot and intermittent. Um, and we don't see that happening very much today, uh, mm. a lot of the time, right? And perhaps those smaller fish, those earlier uh, migrating fish were easier prey for, for pike minnow, or, or perhaps they were simply um, less able to handle the the changing physical template in the, in the main stem of the river because of the other impacts that we've experienced. Um, but for whatever reason, I, that's kind of, these are all pieces of information that are leading me, I think, and others to some extent to believe that we're simplifying that portfolio of life histories that did uh, function in the eel historically. And, and we're asking, how can we, how can we re, you know, um, allow the system to, to express those life histories again. Right, have more diversity. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I have, I cannot tell you how many times I've probably said, I wonder why these fish like to spawn in these kind of dinky tributary habitats yeah. that tend to dry up and, and yeah. because they do They're, I, that's, I'm always surprised some of the um, tributary habitat that, that frequently have adults spawning in them. And it seems like a, a bad life history strategy to spawn in a stream that would potentially go dry. But I didn't think about it from a food productivity perspective. And that makes a lot of sense. And, and most of these juvenile fish are pretty good about reading triggers to get out of a drying stream. I think it's when humans kind of start altering the, those um, natural cues by diverting water, or, you know, I don't know any other number. It's not all anthropogenic, but I think we, right. we do have a, an effect there sometimes. Um, but for the most part, I think fish are pretty good about getting out of, <laughs> out of dry habitat. Yeah. Well, and if you, you know, this is a non-scientific way to think about it, but sometimes I think about a population of, of salmon, almost like a single organism, you know, and it's trying different things on the landscape. It's almost like a beehive, you know, or like a, like a it's not truly a meta organism, but it, it is, it is, I think, uh, useful to think this way that they're, that the salmon, that the mother salmon is just trying so many different things on the landscape. And sometimes some things work and sometimes they don't. And so it could be that in those drying streams, the fish are just cued in and they, and they migrate early. Or it could be that in six or seven out of 10 years, the fish die in those streams and they subsidize the terrestrial ecosystem, you know. But in those three out of 10 years that they don't die, when that stream does provide the physical templates for those fish to survive, that becomes a really, really important life history. And so... I think it's this, you know, we can learn a lesson from, you know, big agriculture, right, about what not to do, right? We don't want a monocrop, right? It's not a, a, a single a single life history, a single population strategy is always at risk. Um, and so, but we also don't want to, I think, as humans, we don't want to go over, we don't want to micromanage recovery either, right? We don't want to, like, dictate which life histories, you know, should and should not succeed, and so there's a balance between that. And ideally that balance is being humble enough and trying to see what are the intrinsic 
potential for life histories that the basin provides and how can we you know uh use our passive and, and in some places active restoration activities to allow those life histories to flourish again um mm -hmm. and sometimes that may take time it's not you know i think good restoration doesn't mean next year we have this massive run of fish it means it means we're we're making the right decisions so this so this system can heal uh, and that and you know has been damaged for almost two centuries, century and a half or more, it may take that time to fully recover. I mean, I hope not, but I think we have to be realistic about the, the, the pace of recovery sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you know, you, you said earlier that a lot of this research is really focused on trying to figure out what's been lost in the eel. And and, and in a lot of ways, I think we're, we're talking about that now, but I'm curious if, if you were going to kind of summarize that into some bullets, like from the research that yeah. you've been doing and your peers have been doing like what are we learning and um what do you think we have lost and how do we get that more diverse portfolio yeah there's a, there's a quote i put on the top of my phd dissertation um and it was a quote i heard jim ligatowich give in a in a conference session once uh, and he said you know animals don't go extinct because we shoot the last one or a bulldozer scrapes away the last piece of habitat, animals go extinct because the web of relationships that sustains them unravels. And then he kind of like anthropomorphized it and he said animals go extinct because of a lack of ecological companionship. And I think that's an important perspective in the eel because we, you know, we think of fish impacts often as just habitat, right? We've, we've screwed up the habitat for these different reasons or climate change is screwing up the habitat. And it's true and it's important that that we restore habitat, but physical habitat alone is not what sustains animals. It's it's a it's an intrinsic and critical part of what sustains animals. But biotic interactions also sustain animals, and so the reason I mentioned we don't necessarily know what we've lost is we also need to look at what are the positive interactions between, say, salmon and other native fish, or salmon and other terrestrial animals that have unraveled, that have allowed this extinction to go on. Um, uh, you know, uh, lamprey are, are, are an example where lamprey could potentially have subsidized salmon and vice versa, both through their bodies and through their behaviors. Uh, and, and, and that's one, or, or, or the, the surf smelt, uh, all the different smelt species in the lower river potentially could have, could have played a role in subsidizing salmon. So, an animal doesn't just go extinct on its own. It goes extinct because this kind of web of relationships unravels, I think. And I and I think trying to understand what those keystone relationships were and seeing how we can work toward recovering those together synergistically, along with the physical habitat work. I'm not at all saying we shouldn't focus on restoring physical habitat. We should, but we can't go into tunnel vision there, I think. So that's, that's one perspective I think that's really important. Um, that I, I think I may have lost track of your question. <laughs> well, well, you know, just what what's been lost in yeah. in the yeah. sense of like what what are we learning now about what's been lost, and then based on what we're learning, yeah, you know, what can we do to to yeah. you know restore those relationships or restore those habitats? Yeah, so that's that that's one component of that. I think another thing that we think we are in, in research community are more inclined to be thinking is that the ability for fish to use the whole basin, um, as particularly the main stem of the river and, and the estuary um, has been impacted as well. And that's both through the presence of pike minnow, but also through you know, the 
physical change in the template from these large flooding flood events that were exacerbated by the logging. Um, and you know, a population of salmon has to use the whole riverscape. They have to they have to occupy the whole riverscape to be really functional and whole. And research recently, recent recent research in the Russian River has shown um, that there's really high mortality of juvenile fish in the main stem river before they even ever reach the ocean. So we might work and spend all this money restoring tributaries and and getting spawning and, and rearing habitat back in shape, and that's good, and we should do that. Right. But then those fish might leave those systems and, and, and move into the main stem and, and experience significant mortality on their way down to the ocean. And so now we're we're trying to say, OK, how can we how can we manage this? What are the most important actions we can take? What are the most effective actions we can take? The main stem is, is, is like a harder problem than a tributary. You can like get your arms around a tributary to some extent. You can meet the people and the landowners and and, con and consider the problems and and use physical habitat restoration techniques that we've really worked on and, and, and improved in the last decades and make a big difference there. And we should keep doing that. But the main stem is harder, right? Because it's this big system that experiences big flows and, and things can get you know, rearranged in a profound way. So how can we work on recovery of the main stem, allowing fish to occupy and use that habitat for extended periods of time, even if they don't use it all summer long? And then where do they go? To, to where do the non-natal fish go, right? The fish that need to continue rearing, that are leaving tributaries, where, what space can they occupy? What space did they historically occupy um, in the lower river? And how can we recover those spaces? Because that I think is, is, is key to so many life histories. That's the gateway, right? All fish have to move through kind of the womb of the, of the estuary, you know, to get out into the ocean. And, and so any number of life histories hinge on and, and depend on that estuarine ecotone and estuary itself being functional to receive large numbers of non-natal fish. Um, that's where the sun shines, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, through the trees and, and, and salmon food is built out of sunlight, right? It, it's really important to remember that salmon themselves and salmon prey are built out of sunlight, you know, through photosynthesis. And the prey species are different down there, right? The, the amphipods and the isopods that fish eat in the estuary have a whole different nutritional profile a whole different energetic value to fish and, and change the growth trajectory, change the hormone development of fish in ways that we're still understanding that have big impacts on their ocean survival. And so I think it's really important to work on that part of the basin um, and, and, and to try to connect that part of the basin with these upstream habitat restoration actions we've been working on. Right. Uh, so that's a huge focus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, estuary systems are, they're just like so beautifully complex. And yeah. I think that really, does, it's a really another good example of why it's so important to understand the biological relationships as much as the natural and physical processes. It's because, I mean, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and it's like orders of magnitude harder to think about how to restore estuarine systems than it is a small tributary. And it's same with the main stem too. I mean, you have to, even just down to like who has to be part of the team to figure out what to do because there are so many different variables that have to be taken into consideration. No, it's definitely true. And I am, I'm an uh, acknowledged novice in estuarine ecology, so I'm not going <laughs> to have extreme expertise down there. I have uh, last summer, we did a, a food web study trying to just document the seasonal um, dynamics from kind of early spring into fall of the presence of of salmon prey in different parts of the estuary so from the mouth you know up to cock robin island all the way up to fern bridge and how those change you know through the summer 
And I mean, the first thing that struck me was just the abundance of food. So I've been measuring invertebrate drift and, and prey abundance and, and tributary streams for years and years. And, you know, there's orders of magnitude more, more food available uh, down in the estuary for salmonids than there is in those environments. So that's, you know, it's something I've kind of known literature and from talking to people, but when you see it, when you put your hands on it, when you have like, when your arms are like crawling with amphipods, you're like, okay, I can, I can really understand this now. Um, but, and, and so I totally agree that the problems in estuaries are complex. On the other hand, you know, we have levied this estuary off to the point that the way that it functioned historically, fish had access to a whole lot of the landscape that they just don't have access to now. And, and not just fish having access to it, but right, the, the movement of water um, and, the, and the interaction between the terrestrial and the aquatic environment in the estuary is really important, right? Because so the base of the food web, most of most sand bearing food webs is, is, is algae. To some extent it's, it's also, uh, you know, terrestrial uh, plants as well. And they can, they can occupy an estuary from like four different ways, right? You can have algae coming in from the ocean. You can have algae coming down from the river. You can have salt marsh vegetation or, or adjacent terrestrial vegetation laterally coming from estuaries into the, into the water. And you can have local like phytoplankton production, right? There's like four, three or four different pathways for that to happen. And when you look at what we've done to not just the Eel River estuary, but most of our coastal estuaries, right? What we've done is we've severed especially that lateral connectivity um, through the through the the way we manage our levees for for agriculture and that's had a big impact on on the way that energy moves you know between systems between the terrestrial and the aquatic system and potentially all the way up to to consumers like fish and salmon and so understanding how that works and how we can you know there's been a lot of really phenomenal work uh, in the central valley where where farmers and agricultural uh, you know, groups are working with fish restoration groups to like let water on the landscape for certain times of the year and then not at other times of the year and and to and to let fish on the landscape in different places and they're they're having really promising results. Um, I'm thinking of you know the, the Geary Ranch work and the Yolo Bypass work in, in the Central mm -hmm. Valley. And I'm wondering, you know, like whether we can in our coastal systems mimic that in some way, you know, where we can have our cake and eat it too a little bit, you know, through through some really good partnerships between uh, restoration work and, and ag. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that that's a future that that can exist for us. Yeah. Benefit fish and people in, in the North Coast. You know, there's a event coming up that's going to be focused in the South Fork Eel. It's hosted by the Salmon Restoration Federation. It's called the Coho Confab. And you're going to be presenting there. I'm just curious, can you talk a little bit about what you're going to share with folks at the Confab and, and maybe talk a little bit just too about how people might be able to, to get in contact with you if they have questions about sure. what you're, what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. Um, so for the Confab, um, I, I'm doing a, a couple of different things. I think I'm going to give a talk at, in, in the opening night, uh, similar to what we talked about here today, but kind of thinking about the, the Eel River as a, as a both historically um, and, 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 and the trajectories that are, that are going on in terms of recovery in, in the basin, but also thinking about it as a foodscape and, and, and how we can use that perspective, you know, um, this life history perspective, these portfolio effect perspectives to, to work toward recovery. And so that'll kind of be a big overview talk. And then, uh, you know, a group of us are gonna give a tour of the Weir site where we're hoping to, to do the, the Pikeman Weir. And then I'm also involved 
with David, as you mentioned, David Drawley, uh, doing a tour of the Angelo Coast Range Reserve, the UC Berkeley Angelo Coast Range Reserve, which is um, near Branscombe in the headwaters of the South Fork of the Eel, a really phenomenal place to visit and, and uh, you know, phenomenal place where research has been done for the last more than 30 years. Um, and, and so we'll be going there to talk about David's work on on the subsurface, you know, and the and the importance of the subsurface and in protecting and promoting Salmonids uh, resilience and, and diversity. Um, so there's kind of three different prongs to what we're doing there at the at the confab. And Coa Confab's a great uh, a great time. Every time I've been, I haven't been as much as the as the main SRF conference, but it's a it's kind of a more relaxed environment and just a really good place to share stories. You know, and I think stories, honestly, this is how we're going to get recovery is by having kind of a shared story. And I know it kind of sounds cheesy, but, you know, the vision for a healthy watershed, like that, like what's the goal? Where are we trying to go with all this work? What, what's recovery? What's the goal of recovery? It's actually a hard thing to articulate and it requires like culture. It requires like people to kind of get together and create overlap in the Venn diagrams of their ecological landscapes that we kind of start to see the same thing and, and, and come together on these same ideas. And to some extent, that's the beauty of salmon is they have their own story that's compelling and powerful and has moved people for a long time. Um, and it allows us to do that in, in a natural way, but it's, it's really important work. And I think in our science and maybe in our other disciplines, we sometimes forget how important it is to have to have those events of coming together and sharing these stories and 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 that those actually help us to create um a, a collective and shared vision for what for what the the landscape would look like when it was healthy you know and it's really important to have the indigenous people of of this area central in that story because they existed in this healthy landscape for for you know centuries and centuries um and so yeah i think that's that is uh I'm really excited about participating in that group, in that group, and that in that talk, and and just keeping those those stories and narratives going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the confab's great in the sense that it's it's really open to um, all kinds of groups that might be interested in learning more about what's going on in a particular area as it relates to watershed or salmon recovery, but. And it, and I do agree with you. I think those shared understandings are really important, like sharing stories so that you can kind of find those um, areas of overlap. It's critical and it's critical to developing the relationships that you were describing. Like as land managers, there's often like, you know, everybody has their own set of objectives and goals, but through those like shared stories and through a shared understanding of like how nutrients and organisms are, you know, move across the landscape, we, we can find, you know, we're pretty ingenuitive people. And so we can find ways to have co-management where you have benefits that kind of cross yeah. boundaries. Absolutely. I mean, I think people who have been farming and fishing in this basin as well have really important stories that should be involved in that, in, 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 that, are, that are necessary to that future. Uh, it's not just the conservation interest and it's the it's the coalescence of those things together towards some understanding of what is good of what is a healthy ecosystem you know which is really a non-scientific it's a cultural question right it's mm -hmm. science can help us get there once we have defined it but it it, it, re it requires a definition from the community mm -hmm. and so yeah anyway so i'm yeah i'm excited to be there and if folks have questions about anything i've said i 
have been recovering from COVID, so hopefully I didn't ramble too much or, uh, <laughs> or lose, lose topics. So if you want me to go back and circle back on something or answer some specific questions, feel free to email me. Um, you can reach me at, at uh, Gabriel, G-A-B-R-I-E-L underscore Rossi, R-O-S-S-I at berkeley.edu. Um, Great. And, and so I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Great. Well, I, if you were rambling, I found it very entertaining. So. <laughs> okay. Good, <laughs> Interesting good. Rambles. No, I appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down. I, I, I know I said this before, but I really do appreciate all the work that's coming out of the Angela Reserve and beyond. And um, it's, it's not really easy to execute these types of monitoring efforts. And it's so critical for us to actually be effective at the work that we're doing to restore yeah. watersheds and to recover salmon. No, and it feels like a really, like a there's a time, there's a moment kind of right now that's happening in the eel and elsewhere where a lot of folks are kind of coming out and coming together to, mm -hmm. to work together. Like it's, you know, obviously that, you know, UC Berkeley has been, been there, but but there's been so many other groups working in the basin for a long time, right? And mm -hmm. there's a lot of expertise in this basin, um, you know, uh, researchers, nonprofits, just individuals who have been living here for a long time. All of them have a lot of shared knowledge about this system. And so it's a moment where we can kind of put that together mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and people are coming together and, and getting together on these, on these subjects. And it's been very productive. And I've been really just fortunate to, to be here at that time, you know, because it's it's uh, otherwise a single person, you can't you can't do much, right? So yeah, yeah, and, it's 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 great. I mean, it we we there's so much that we know, and then there's still so much that we don't know and don't understand. And I just I feel like a lot of the current research is doing a good job of kind of challenging some assumptions and and redirecting the ways that we're thinking about things. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me on. I really, really appreciated it. And yeah. uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. Well, that wraps up my interview with ecologist and researcher Gabe Rossi and this episode of the Ecology Hour. If you are interested in learning more about the Salmon Restoration Federation or the upcoming Coho Confab, you can find information at www.calsalmon.org. And if you have follow-up questions for Gabe, you can contact him at Gabriel underscore Rossi at berkeley.edu. And thanks for listening to the Ecology Hour. You can catch this show every Tuesday at 7 p.m. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you.